you're just joining us this Sunday, we're, this is our third week in a new series in the book of Zechariah. Uh, please turn to chapter 2. Zechariah is the second to the last book in, in the Old Testament, and he's one of the minor prophets. So, gosh, with a, a classification like that, a, a minor prophet, um, there's not much incentive to pay attention to these guys, is there? Uh, it, it's an unfortunate classification. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's, it's God's Word to us, and, and I hope that as we Look at Zechariah as we see how God speaks to us through the mouth of the man who lived, uh, gosh, 500 B.C. And he spoke to a bunch of people who were returning refugees in a war-torn city in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East of all places. Um, And God still speaks to us uh, through Zechariah. So if you found your place in chapter 2, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion. You who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. It shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let me pray for us. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word? Would you remind us of the glory, your glory in our midst? Would you remind us that we are the apple of your eye? Would you help us? Would you give us your spirit so that you in turn, more and more, would be the apple of our eye? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the prophet Zechariah uh, begins with a series of eight different visions. Um, we're looking at the, the third of those visions. They're all sort of parallel. They, they form a pattern that, um, that, that I'll address periodically. But, 
But this is the third of the, the eight visions. And in conjunction with that vision is a, an oracle, uh, more of a direct word from God uh, to, uh, to his people. Uh, let's begin with that third vision uh, where you've got a, a city and this man with a measuring line and a wall of fire, all these things that are going on. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. This first vision is uh, uh, directed toward those who's, uh, who, who are coming back from captivity in Babylon on all points uh, of the compass, and they've returned to rebuild the city. And that's why there's this image of a guy who has a measuring line. In the very first vision, this was referred to back in chapter 1, verse 16. You can, you can check it out if you've got your Bibles open, where the Lord says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Uh, and here you've got that measuring line image again. It's a tape measure, right? I mean, we've seen this before. We broke this out last week. And when, you, um, when you've got a tape measure and when somebody starts you know, measuring and going like this, you, you know something's about to happen, some, some, kind of in, some kind of change. Generally, there's an improvement, a repair, a restoration, uh, uh, or something brand new altogether. Um, and, and so when you think about Jerusalem having been sacked and destroyed, and now these refugees come back, uh, the whole city needs to be rebuilt. And so, as Zechariah in verse 2, chapter 2 says, where are you going? Um, the man with the measuring line says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to, to see what is its width and what is its length. So, uh, maybe he's got something a little longer than a tape measure um, to measure an entire city. Uh, more properly, he's actually a surveyor. Uh, he's got his surveyor's um, uh, equipment out, and he's, he, he's doing what seems really practical, you know, pretty, pretty common sense. If you're going to rebuild a city, you've got to measure out its walls, you've got to plot the streets, you've got to make a grid. Um, AJ, there's a couple of slides I, I wanted to show. Uh, and, and this is the slide of Washington, D.C., when... Um, when it was commissioned originally, there's a French surveyor, Pierre uh, Lefont, who put this grid together. Uh, and you compare that grid with Rome, and you see this like spaghetti bowl of stuff, uh, and, and compare them side by side now, and you'll, you'll see the difference between the two. Uh, that's a nicely laid out city right there, D.C. And Rome is a mess. You'll get lost in Rome if you ever visit there, I promise you. Uh, and so it makes a lot of sense, right? If, if you're going to Plot out a city, you want to take the measuring line to the city, this is great. This is, you know, engineers love this guy and, uh, and everybody with a, just a little bit of, of practicality. But look what happens. In verses 3 and 4, we're told, no, 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 no. Put, put the measuring line away. We don't need it. We're, we're not going to plot this city. We're not going to ma uh, measure the walls. And we're not going to... Uh, do, do that in the, in the strictest sense. In verse 4, uh, the prophet is hearing these words, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. So basically the language is put your tape measure away, put your survey equipment away. We don't need any walls. This city will spread out and become villages that are overflowing with people and, and cows, of all things, um, 
people and cows. And all over the prophets, you see this language of what will be the ultimate future for God's city and God's people. Uh, Gosh, almost 16 years ago, we planted this church. And one of the verses that really helped us cast vision for what tabernacle was going to be, even, even when it comes to our name, comes from Isaiah 54, where uh, God's people are called to enlarge the place of your tent, enlarge your tabernacle, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. So there's this beautiful picture of expansion and multiplication that that Jerusalem would become such a, a populous place as God's people are added to every day, every year, and so on. The nations pour into this city that uh, walls would be actually counterproductive. Uh, we don't need walls because what we have ultimately is the Lord's protection. I mean, so who's ever heard of a city without walls? That sounds, un- that sounds ridiculous uh, to the conventional wisdom uh, not only was this growth impossible to envision, but, but the, th- the other thinking is, well, now everybody knows that a city has walls because everybody knows that every city has enemies. And who would be stupid enough not to, not to take precautions against enemies? But the Lord says, no, you don't need to worry about enemies. In verse 5, he says, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. It's a real picture that um, you know, is a recollection of, of the Exodus and the pillar of fire at night, which was a pillar of cloud by day, and it would come and it would stand in between God's people and, and the armies of Pharaoh and be this barrier, this guard at their rear. And, um, and so... God's just promising to be their protection. They don't need to worry about self-protection. God would be their protection. How would you respond if God were to tell you that you, you shouldn't worry about protecting yourself? You shouldn't worry about walls. You shouldn't worry about locks. Don't lock your doors. In fact, don't even shut your doors. You know what? You don't even need doors uh, on, on your houses. Don't even worry about that. If I were to tell you today that that is, you know, the sermon application. Go home, and tonight, don't lock your doors. In fact, don't even shut your door. You'd think I was crazy. I mean, that would be crazy. That would be stupid. Because what you also need to know is that Zechariah is he's a prophet. And there are times when the prophets address the present tense, and there are times when the prophets address the future tense, and this certainly is a picture of the future. A future that one day uh, will, will take place. A future that Revelation 21 tells us about. How when the, the new Jerusalem descends, its gates will never be shut. Right? The gates of the new Jerusalem will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. There will be no threat, no tears, no pain, no struggle, no strife. But that's not, that's not, that's not yet, right? We know very well that there's pain. We know very well that there's struggle. We know very well that there's the reality of enemies. We're in the now and the not yet. Yes, God is our protection. But there's a not yet to that as well. Zechariah is describing the the ultimate not yet, this wall of fire all around. 
uh, and, and, and yet there's a now as well. That God really is our protector. He really is our keeper. Uh, he really is the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth, his name. And even though you and I still experience the brokenness and the woundedness of this world, um, we know that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. He's not left us. He's not abandoned us. There's mystery there. There's, per- there's perplexity there. Uh, there are phones that ring during sermons and weird stuff that go on. And that's cool. It's all right. Uh, but that's just, that happens. This is the now and the not yet. Look, look now uh, at the rest of this uh, chapter 2 because pro- Zechariah moves from relaying the third of his visions to now addressing God's people sort of in the first person. Uh, he's still God's mouthpiece, but he's not so much describing things that he's seen, but now he's interpreting and, and giving a direct, um, direct exhortation uh, to, first of all, to the people who are still in exile, who are still um, out there among the nations. And in verse 6, he says, flee, you know, up, up, get up, and flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as to the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon." Uh, the north is just sort of this generic language for all of the other nations because the geography of the time was such that if any enemy nation were to ever come and invade uh, Jerusalem, generally they had to kind of funnel down through the north, even if they were coming from the, from the east. Uh, so when he's calling everybody to flee from the land of the north, he's calling those who are in exile, come back. Come back to the, the, the New Jerusalem. Come back to where God's people are gathering. Uh, flee from this place where you are in jeopardy of being corrupted by these you know, false religions and all the other nations and their wrong ways of relating to God. God has revealed Himself specifically to His people in Israel. And, uh, and He's calling them to come to Him, to worship Him purely and rightly, and not to adopt the, the false religions and all of the mess that they would encounter as exiles. Um, Zechariah, one, one of the reasons why we're studying Zechariah among the 12 minor prophets is because he's actually quite prominent in the New Testament. The Gospels quote him all over the place, and Revelation quotes him all over the place, uh, or alludes to him. So listen to Revelation 18, and this sounds exactly like verse 6 and 7. Uh, John, the Apostle John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich, and the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So God's people are always in danger of being corrupted by the world that we live in. Um, the formula is as Christians, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be, first of all, citizens of the new Jerusalem rather than 
primarily considering ourselves citizens of whatever Babylon we, we inhabit. So the two, as Revelation describes it, the two most powerful temptations or influences really aren't surprising to any of our modern ears, right? are they? Still the same things. Still sexual immorality and you know, luxurious living. These are the two you know, major temptations among others uh, that have been afflicting God's people and calling us you know, away from the glory of God into the, uh, the, the allure of Babylon. Uh, it, was, it was the case 2,000 years ago. It's still the case today. And in this oracle that uh, Zechariah continues to share with us, he says in verse 8, something really fa- fantastic and beautiful and good, that the Lord of hosts, after His glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And that I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. God's people are dear to him. He, he, I mean, he's like a, a, an affectionate dad. He calls his children with like with pet names, right? You're the apple of my eye. How's that for a holy language? God calling you the apple of his eye, calling you the daughter of Zion. You know, he uh, he addresses the the daughter of Babylon here too. Those who had oppressed his his people, who mistreated them, who had abused them and oppressed them. And he says, you know what, I'm about to wipe my hand over your enemies and I'm going to make them your plunder. You who were their plunder previously, they're going to become your plunder. And you know how somebody would just, with a very graceful backhand, it totally wipe out a chessboard and all its pieces go flying? That's how easy it is. As God's describing how he will handle Israel's enemies. Like a backhand across a chessboard. This isn't the first time God uses the, uh, these terms of endearment, um, like apple of his eye. He used that expression before in Deuteronomy. Um, again, when, when he was addressing that, first gener- that second generation who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, uh, they're still wandering through the, the wasteland, the, the desert, and God says that uh, I found him in a desert land. I found my people there in the howling waste of the wilderness. And God encircled him, and he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. So, just like back in the Exodus, God's people were being called out of a foreign land, called out of the the influences of Egypt, and the false religion, and the worldly way of looking at life, and being called into a new land, a place where God would dwell, a holy place. God's people under Zechariah are being called to the same thing. It's a new exodus. God's a pillar of fire protecting them, and he's calling them out of Babylon, calling them out of the the impure influences. So Zechariah is giving us a picture of the world that's divided into two groups of people. There's the children, the daughter of Babylon, right? And then there's the daughter or the children of Zion. It's two classifications of people. One group is the apple of God's eye. And the other is actually the object of God's judgment. 
He's going to hold them accountable for their sins. How do you know which group that you're in? The daughter of Babylon or the daughter of Zion? How do you know which group is you? How do you know if you are the apple of God's eye? It's an incredibly important question. We ought not to presume, of course I'm the apple of God's eye. Look at me, right? No. To be considered the apple of God's eye is a remarkable privilege. It's, I mean, it's, it's actually unthinkable if you consider it for a second. How do you know that that can be true of you? Well, one way to, to think about it is to ask yourself, well, how can I know if I'm the apple of God's eye? Well, one way to think about it is, is to ask the question in reverse, is God the apple of my eye? Or is something else the apple of my eye? Is something else competing with God who should have first place in my attention and my affections, but actually it's something else. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's luxury. Just like we were warned about. Just like God's people have always been warned about. Don't presume. Be on guard and ask ourselves, what is truly the apple of my eye? Does God, when it comes to sex, when it comes to money, does God get to tell you what to do with your body? Or do you feel entitled to call your own shots? When it comes to money, does God get to tell you what to do with your money? Or do you feel entitled to call your own shots? The answer to that question is going to tell you what is the apple of your eye. This is the litmus test that Jesus used. I'm not making this up. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, you know, his eyes, her, her eyes, looking at a man, doesn't matter what gender here, with, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What is the apple of your eye? Jesus wants us to pay attention to what is our treasure. He wants us to pay attention to what captures our imagination. He wants us to pay attention to what is the apple of our eye. What do our eyes dwell on? A beautiful body or the beauty of the Lord? Do our eyes dwell on, the eyes of our hearts dwell on worldly treasures or is our treasure in heaven? In the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Remember, thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever is the apple of your eye, that's what guides and captivates your heart. So, you know, immediately after warning us against the attractiveness of money and luxury, Jesus connects that warning, as he just did, about where's your treasure? He connects it with the eye as an indicator of what's going on in our soul. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
So listen, um, what's the general thinking about Christians, about Christianity? Like if, if you're new to the church, new, new to this whole, um, new to religion in general, uh, you've probably got a clearer picture of this than maybe than some of us who have been hanging out in the church for a while. We, we tend to lose touch sometimes. But what's like this general thinking about religion and about Christianity is that people think that really good Christians all have their act together and that they aren't tempted by sexual immorality or, or luxurious living or, or really anything else. I mean, the thinking is that, you know, a really good Christian is somebody who's got their act together. Uh, but the truth is, the truth is, is that everyone here in this room, everyone, no matter where they are, uh, is all, they're all wrestling with something besides God as the apple of our eye. None of us are perfectly pure. There's something competing for God's attention in our hearts, always. That's just the reality of a now and a not yet kind of existence. We love God. We're, we want Him as the center of our attention, but we also are wrestling with the sinful nature. So there are no perfectly pure people. Let's get that straight. But the real difference between the children of Babylon uh, and the children of Zion is that the first group, the children of Babylon, is content. But the children of Zion repent. One group is content, and the other group repents. So the children of Babylon are happy. They're happy to live in Babylon. They don't, they don't mind it. They, don't, they think it's great. The children of Zion are repenting of our love for Babylon. That's the difference. So on the one hand, the children of Babylon think that God doesn't really care too much about what's in the apple of their eye. Um, they're really not, you know, God doesn't care too much about the darkness within them. He's pretty tolerant. Uh, he's lenient. He'll look the other way, right? But the children of Zion, they know that God cares. God cares so much about what is in the apple of our eye. He cares so much about the darkness within us that He actually sent Jesus to bear our darkness, to, to absorb our darkness into His brilliant, beautiful soul. Jesus took all of our sin on Himself. And there was that period of darkness uh, to, to demonstrate the reality of what He was doing on the cross. And Jesus took our, our place as sinners. Uh, he took our place as somebody who, I mean, I want you to imagine Jesus uh, lustfully uh, dressing down a woman. I mean, that just seems like an oxymoron. That couldn't possibly happen. And yet, that's how He died, as somebody who did that. And I want you to imagine Jesus as just greedy and covetous and you know not giving any money away not being generous at all but just being a scrooge and and that's exactly how he died as somebody whose whose god was money that's how he died on the cross in that darkness and in that place and in, in our place and so we the children of zion know that god takes sin very seriously he's just and he's holy but he's also kind and he's loving and he gave us a substitute so that's one of the differences between the children of Babylon and the children of Zion is that the children of Babylon are content. The children of Zion repent. The children of Zion also are, are, are looking and trying to find out and are asking themselves, where is the competition for God's affection? Um, you know, it was about two weeks ago, 
and uh, and I was I felt this tickle in my ear. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but it was it wasn't just on the outside of my ear. It was like inside my ear, and I'm like, what's what is that? And I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to address them. You can't scratch the tickle in your ear, but when I was trying to just rub it out, I felt something, and I I pinched at it, and it was like I felt this tugging sensation, like deep in my ear. Have you ever felt that? And I, and I pinched some more, and I yanked, and to, to my horror and simultaneous amusement, do you know what I pulled out of my ear? A hair, about one and a half inches long. <laughs> I've reached the age where the, the longest hair in my head is growing out of my ear. How's that for a beautiful picture? Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye, the hair that is in your own ear? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Another difference, another distinction between the children of Babylon and the children of Zion. The children of Babylon assume that their eyes are fine. My apple's good. While the children of Zion understand and realize that we've all got our own eye issues. So the children of Babylon, they think they see clearly, and they see so clearly, in fact, that they can easily spot the planks and the bad apples in everybody else's eye, right? They're fine. The problem is you. But when you're a child of Zion, when you realize what Jesus has done for you, and you realize the competition in your soul and the, 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 the real magnitude of that battle for the affection and the attention that God alone deserves, you start to look at yourself more seriously than you look at other people. And you start to realize, you know what? I, I need to address me first. And then I can start talking about the speck that's in your eye. I need to deal with the plank in my own eye. I need to be, even be aware that even though I don't, I'm not even, a, I, I, right now I don't see much that would be concerned, but I, I need to be cautious, I need to be humble, and I need to be investigating uh, because there's probably things that I don't see yet. And so the children of Zion are aware that it's probably my concern to my, my primary concern needs to be my relationship with God before I start addressing the things that I see wrong in your relationship with God. So do you see how that reverses the whole focus? That's one of the ways that we can know, wait a minute, how am I the apple of God's eye? Well, is God the apple of my eye? And what's going on in my own heart first and foremost? One of the beautiful things that um, Zechariah ends with is he moves, he shifts his attention from calling uh, the exiles out to flee from the north to come and escape uh, the temptations of you know the, the nations and all the false gods that they're living for. And then he turns his attention to those who have already returned, to the refugees. And he gives them three beautiful promises in verses 10 and following. He says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And he says it twice in verse 11 as well. I dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Um, this beautiful picture of God still pursuing us and coming to us. Yes, we are the apple of his eye. He doesn't 
um, get tired of us and he doesn't reject us and he doesn't get fed up with us. He keeps coming to us and he wants to be with us. He tells us again in verse 11 that many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. It's this wonderful open invitation to come. All nations, anyone who comes and wants to worship God can come. And in verse 12, we're told that the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So these these three promises, I'm going to dwell in your midst, the nations can join themselves to the Lord, He will again choose Jerusalem. These are startling evidence. They're the remarkable evidence. <clears throat> As you and I, when we start looking at ourselves, we start looking at the, the bad apple in my eye and the plank in my eye and the hair in our ear and all that, we start to wonder, how can, how can I possibly be the apple of God's eye? And then we're told these promises that make it clear as day that God's love and acceptance are far greater than our sins ever could be. God is calling all of us out of Babylon, out of our sin and out of the love for the world. And nothing we have done could ever disqualify us. Nothing you have done will ever disqualify you from coming back into his presence. How do we know that's true? How can this be true? Because we look at the cross. The cross takes away our guilt, our shame, and our darkness. You are still the apple of his eye. The only thing that ever keeps somebody out of God's presence is their own refusal to come. Their own refusal to repent. The cross tells the world that there's nothing you've done that could ever fully separate you from the love of God except if you don't come, if you refuse to come. So is God the apple of your eye? Will you be honest about the plank in your own eye? Will you stop looking at everyone else's plank and start looking at your own plank and realize Jesus wants me to come? He wants to take the plank out of my eye. He wants to renew in me a, a, a new heart, a new apple, so that God would have his rightful place in my life. Zechariah ends in verse 13 showing us what is the proper response to the reality of a God who takes sin seriously in Jesus' death and yet still comes to us in mercy in Jesus' resurrection and his return. Zechariah tells us, be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I think that's a very appropriate way to finish. Let's be silent before him for a few moments.